Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk. Today, we have Jenna Harrington from Circleville, Ohio joining us. She's a licensed professional clinical counselor who believes in empowering you to see your own role in your healing process. When I had asked her in advance of the show to give me a fun fact about herself, she gave me such, a col such colorful options enthusiastically. Jenna isn't afraid to show all aspects of her personality. But a fun fact about Jenna, she has an irrational fear of chickens. Jenna, welcome. Thank you. So irrational fear of chickens, where do you think that comes from? Well, <laughs> I guess it's really probably not completely irrational. Um, when I was about six, um, we lived, one of the many houses we lived in growing up was uh, a farm. And uh, we had, uh, you know, farm has chickens. So we had this rooster and this rooster uh, was not terribly friendly. And uh, being the kind of child that I was, um, uh, I was always pretty adventurous as a kid. So um, I was out, I always played outside. It was always outside. You couldn't, you could not keep me inside. So I was out in the, in the uh, barnyard one day and I decided that I was just going to kind of, you know, walk like the rooster was walking. So I was, you know, mocking the rooster and kind of walking like it did. And um, apparently it didn't like that very much. So uh, it decided it was going to chase me and attack me. So uh, by the end of the fiasco, I was uh, bloody and sitting up on top of this fence and uh it didn't end well for the rooster i will say that we my dad killed it and um we had it for dinner and uh but since that time i have not really liked I, i've not liked chickens at all uh, and pretty much any large fowl makes me extremely nervous um i mean even to the point where um when i was when i was dating my husband, my, my current husband, uh, we were walking and <laughs> walking through, a, I mean, through a neighborhood, I mean, like a development neighborhood, there should not be chickens. There should not be chickens in this neighborhood. Uh, there would be no reason for there to be chickens in this neighborhood. I'm talking in town, there's no farms and we are taking a walk. And literally, I'm not kidding. This is not a joke literally a chicken walks out of somebody's backyard and walks across the road right in front of us. And I have never in my life, and I'm not a small woman and never in my life have I moved so quickly. And I literally, my husband is six, four, literally tried to climb up him like a tree. I, you know, pouring down sweat at this point. And I'm like, I have, you know, and I can't speak. I'm stammering, you know, some weird, you know, there's a, you know, there's, there's, there's a chicken. And, and he's like, what is happening? You know, because I mean, granted, he's kind of surprised there's a chicken in the middle of the road, wa literally walking across the road. And my thought is, why the hell is there a chicken crossing the road? Not a joke. And he's like, you know, we, we hadn't been dating long. And he's like, why is this woman climbing me? You know, stammering and sweating. What is happening? I'm literally having a panic attack. So, yeah, I mean, and this was, you know, I'm you know, at the time, you know, 42 years old and I'm shimmying up him like a, you know, lunatic. And uh, yeah, so I still, to this day, that many years later, am quite terrified of chickens. Um, it didn't bother me. It didn't even turn and look our way. I mean, it just was minding its own business crossing. I still have never figured out where the chicken came from, why it crossed the road and where it went. Never you saw it again. You believe it all stems from that, that first bloody experience? Absolutely. I still have a scar on my leg. Still have a scar on my leg from that where that thing nailed me. And I have other experiences with chickens and they've never attacked me ever since. But I mean, I, it's like, you know, I had took care of a farm for a friend of mine when I was in, in, when I was in early college. And of course, I went out there to take care of their horses, but it also involved feeding their stupid chickens 
And, you know, chickens get really excited when you feed them. And I swear, I mean, I, I did it, but I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I mean, it brought out moves that I didn't know I had. I mean, like ninja, you know, shrieking noises because they just come running at you and it's like they just want fed. But I thought I was going to have a heart attack every time. I hated it. That was worst part of my day by far. I thought I'm never going to survive this week of feeding these stupid chickens. And every morning I would just go into these karate moves and it was awful. Um, so yeah. Any way of, any way of working with yourself to, to eliminate this? Well, I did, I did manage, um, I did manage to hold my decorum one time because I had to, it was a professional thing. Um, before I became a, a, a therapist, I um, worked as a home visitor. I worked with really young children and in uh, a program called Early Head Start. So I would go out to their homes and I would work with the children and their parents on developmental stuff. And um, so uh, I had been working with a family and the family had gone through a divorce. So where before I would go to the home of, uh, you know, the apartment where the parents were sharing, when the, when the family went through a divorce, I would sometimes go to the moms and then sometimes go to the dad. Well, the dad had moved back in with his parents who, guess what, lived on a farm. Um, who also, by the way, believed in free range chickens. I did not know this when I went to their home. So I get out of the car at their home and you know the, the little boy at this time it was like a zero to three program so the little boy's like two and a half years old and so um i uh i get out of the car and i go around to the trunk to get the the basket of things that i had taken and i look up and i'm surrounded by chickens and i'm oh my god and you know here's this little boy standing at his door hi miss Tana. so i can't panic I can't panic in front of this little two-year-old boy and, you know, karate chop there's chickens. That would just be totally wrong. So I did have to, you know, I didn't even realize at the time I, you know, I wasn't a trained counselor. I'd never really dealt with my irrational fear of chickens. I never had to, I just, you know, did my moves. Um, but no, I just, you know, I did. I, I found actually deep breathing really works because that's what I did. I stood at the back of my car, just like took several deep breaths and thought I can do this. I can walk from my car, walk, not run in a panic shrieking fit of terror. Um, I can do this. And I just kind of talked my way through it. So I can, and if I had to, I could, I could probably work my way down. Um, and I, you know, I, it, I think the time with Neil, my husband, I think it was just so out of, I just wasn't, I mean, who expects a chicken to cross the road in the middle of a suburban development? So that was my thing there. I think I probably would have been okay. I just didn't. So I think now if I had to, and as long as they're caged, I'm fine. Don't you expect, I just, I will never own chickens. Um, He's asked, he's asked me to, he thinks that would be great. Um, so maybe that's what, maybe that'll be my therapy. Maybe someday if we move out into the country, maybe we'll own chickens. Maybe I'll work towards that. Maybe if I get them from baby chickens and we don't have a rooster, it's a thought. Fair enough. Got okay. it. So yeah. how, is there any relationship between uh, you being an avid rule follower and any of these farm experiences as a child? Um, you know, I don't know that there is. I, because um, I don't know that I was as a kid. I think that, um, I think that came later on. I, I don't know. My mother though. Okay, so my mom, I think this partly comes from my mom. Um, my mom is very much, you know, you do things how they're supposed to be done. Um, and she, she's, um, she's very much, you know, be kind of worried about what the neighbors might think. So that was always kind of a, a, a theme in the background, uh, which, See, as a teenager, I, I don't know. I was not like that at all. I mean, I did crazy things. I mean, 
So I'm not sure when that, that when that began to set in. Um, Let's pause but, for a moment. Have, so you, you say crazy things as a teenager. Can you give us any examples? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So my mother was, my mom was a single mom. Um, very wonderful mother. Um, really did. I mean, she did really pretty great by us. Um, I think we probably wore her out. Okay, so she was pretty strict though. I mean, you know, she wanted to know where we were gonna be, who we were gonna be with. She needed to know who know who they were and there were not gonna be any shenanigans. Well, I wanted shenanigans. So um, I liked to, you know, maybe do things I wasn't supposed to do. So uh, I would sneak out occasionally, but my mother was like the lightest sleeper you would ever, like ever meet. I mean, you know, I mean, the floor would creak and she'd be like, who's that? What's there? You know, so, I mean, you were not getting anything by this woman. And the problem was because she was a single mother, like nobody, and it was, we all had, we were all sisters. There were four of us in the house. So like the back door creaked really badly. None, I mean, who, none of us knew what, even like what WD-40 was. So, I mean, any, anything creaked, it never got fixed. It just creaked forever. Back door creaked horribly. Um, and like her bedroom, you know, like she could see out the front door. So there was no going out the front door. So you couldn't sneak out the front door because she'd catch you. And if you tried to go out the back door, I mean, it just creaked. So I developed a plan. And, oh, by the way, my bedroom is on the second floor. So... I, I had to devise a plan. I'm like, okay, how can I do this? I had a little dog. I've always, you know, I've always had dogs. So I had this little dog. So my plan was this. During the day, I packed a little bag of clothes, pajama, a, pajama, a bag of pajamas, actually. And I stuck them in the garage. And when I took the dog out before bed, I didn't bring her back in. Because sometimes I'd take her out really late at night, like after my mom went to bed, you know, at 11 o'clock or so. So I just kind of left her tied in the garage. So then I came back in and I waited to make sure my mom was fully asleep. And at some point, I don't know how my mother didn't notice this for a long time, other than the fact that she was a single mother and very tired most of the time. But I had taken a mattress, an old mattress that we had had out in the garage that my mom had meant to throw away. And I dragged it to the side of the house underneath my bedroom window. And so when I knew my mom was asleep, I opened my window and I jumped out my window and landed on the mattress. Um, now, I don't know how that didn't wake somebody up because I, I was not the most graceful. Um, you know, I was always in sports, but like, and so I was good at that, but like everything, like general walking, not so great. You know, I could play basketball and soccer and stuff, but like walking, jumping out windows, not so graceful. So I always hit the side of the house, you know, so I tried not to like Ugh! really loud, but I always did. So I hit the side of the house and usually, you know, kind of rolled down or whatever. Then I landed on the mattress, didn't break anything. So that was good. Uh, and then I would leave and I would go out and, you know, do whatever I was going to do, whether it was, you know, I probably shouldn't admit this and hopefully my mother isn't ever going to hear this podcast, but uh, like go out drinking with my friends or do whatever else I might do. Um, and then, you know, come back, sneak back in. But what I would do is I'd go in the garage, I would change into my pajamas, I would get the dog. And then if she heard me coming back in the bar, in the back door, and it creaked, she just thought I was taking the dog out in the middle of the night. So that way she just never do. And if she heard me, if she didn't hear me, great. But if she did hear me, uh, yeah, I was just taking the dog out. And, you know, and if I looked all weird or, you know, drunk, it's just because I was tired. So, <laughs> you know, it was, it was all good. So that's what I did. So those were some of the crazy things. Um, it's clear that, that you're, you're quite crafty and clever uh, uh, from a yeah. young age. Um, 
how does somebody not notice a mattress just outside of their house? Come on. Well. <laughs> like the story's flawed right over there. I know. <laughs> well, eventually, eventually she did. Um, I think, uh, well, we always did the mowing. So she didn't have, you know, so. Well, and usually, actually, before I would commit, I would like, I would set it back up so it was like against the house so it wasn't as noticeable. So, uh, but eventually one of the neighbors said, uh, hey, Jean, you know, do you know you have a mattress like leaning against the side of your house? So she asked me about it. This is where the cleverness really kicked in really quickly. I was like, oh, yeah. Um, well, you know that day we had large trash day pickup. Um, I, you know, I dragged it out because I thought, you know, you wanted to get rid of it. So I just, you know, was going to drag it out. And um, I dragged it out and I was taking it down to the curb, but then the phone rang. So I laid it against the side of the house and I ran in to get the phone. Uh, and then I, you know, ended up talking to, you know, my friend Rob. And then I just forgot about it until uh, like a few days later. And then I didn't feel like dragging it back in. So I just left it there. Um, I don't know that she fully bought it. I think she, you know, she just... She kind of did, but didn't want to accuse me of lying, and so I think she just really appreciated the cleverness. You know, she probably daughter. did. She just like let it slide. And she said, "Well, you need to take that back to the garage." And I said, "Okay." So I, I you know, I didn't really get to to use that one again because so I had to find a different way to sneak out at that point. Apparently, so. your house has an abundance of mattresses. You can be like <laughs> down a mattress and like no problem, no sweat. <laughs> So I had, to, I had to figure out a new way to sneak out at that point. So, what was the uh, transition to college like for you? Did the kind of cleverness and um, mischief, like being mischievous, did that continue? Um, yeah, <laughs> a little bit. See, so, okay, as a teenager, I went back and forth between. Um, my family grew up we actually, we, we grew up, I grew up going to church. And so the Christian faith was really important to us. So I really went back and forth a lot between really trying hard to live by my faith. And then I would, you know, kind of go into these shenanigans and, you know, kind of get wild and stuff like that. So um, I think when I very first left for college, I was trying to be really good and it didn't really last very long. Um, but actually I, I moved to college on my 18th birthday. So I had uh, I mean, it was literally on my birthday. My mom and my mom, my mom had just gotten remarried in that May and, and my birthday's in August. So they, she and my stepdad had taken me up and um, basically they, it was like on the fourth floor of a dorm and they didn't have, uh, they didn't have elevators. I mean, who builds dorms without elevators? But they, you know, they didn't. It's, and so we had like carried all my crap up and my roommate wasn't there and it was on my birthday. Everybody was tired. So we basically loaded all my stuff up, said, okay, here you are. Happy birthday. And they left. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, so that was, that was my move to college. And so I remember kind of like sitting there in my room going, oh my God, you know, I'm like just 18 and an adult and I'm living in this dorm and I'm there by myself. And, um, so yeah, it was kind of a weird transition. Um, and I had a roommate, it was one of my really close friends in high school. She and I had kind of partied quite a, a bit. So it was kind of weird. I was trying to be really good, but then it didn't last very long. So yeah, the shenanigans did kind of continue. And actually, <laughs> I, I'm kind of like one of my sons. I never was really good at getting away with stuff. I mean, I was and I wasn't. So I decided at some point that, um, I, I really probably shouldn't like say these things publicly, but uh, I was not the best teenager. So I decided I was going to, I did occasionally smoke pot. So I decided I was going to try to do this in my dorm room. Why I would do this is beyond me. Um, so yeah, I did. And of course the RA, the resident advisor, you know, smelled it because we let our room was right next door to hers. I mean, how dumb can you possibly get? But I wasn't, I was very bright, like intelligent wise, but like common sense, <laughs> not always. So, you know, she knocks on the door and she's like, um, I'm smelling marijuana. You know, is somebody smoking marijuana in there? And I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, shoot. 
you know, I thought I had the window open. Isn't that, you know, so anyway, so my roommate was like, you're going to get us kicked out of here. She's like, you've got to, you know, so anyway, I didn't get us kicked out, but I almost got myself kicked out of college. So at that point, I thought I better probably straighten up a little bit and like, you know, do something better. <laughs> and uh, so I did. I kind of straightened up a little bit at that point. It did, well, I just decided not to be quite as stupid anymore. So, um, but yeah, I, I don't think that was my first semester. And I, I don't think I stayed in. I didn't stay in college for very long the first time around. I think I did one or two semesters and then I stopped. And I lived, I lived up there for a long time, but I actually didn't stay in school for very long the first time around. So what, um, what were you studying and why did you stop? Uh, when I first went um, at 18, I went to Bowling Green State University and I was um, a music performance major. Um, and then I had switched. Actually, I must have stayed in for a little bit. It's so, it's so long ago. Um, I, I was a music performance major. And then I switched to uh, music education uh, because I, I liked the music performance, but it was so much opera. They just were just steady on opera. And I thought, this is not my thing. I don't like to sing in other language. I mean, there's just so much on that, and I think I was intimidated. I mean, my vocal coach, I had never had any, I had never had a single vocal lesson in my life. Like, never. I'd never had any music lessons in my life. So anything that I had done was just me. It was just self-taught. It was like, I played guitar and, um, I mean, I'd been in the band, so like, you know, I knew how to read music, but um, anything that I had done was just self-taught. So um, I was a little intimidated, I think because my vocal lesson, the person who did my vocal lessons was just incredible. And I was really intimidated by her. I had never, I'd never been taught anything. I didn't know how to breathe right. I didn't, I just sang. And so uh, I think that was part of it. And it was just such a different style than I was used to. And I'm like, I don't know if I, you know, and they were really, that was kind of their program was like pushing a lot towards opera. I'm like, I don't want to be an opera singer. What am I doing? You know, this is not what I want to do. So then I thought, well, maybe I'll just move towards, you know, music education or something. And then life was kind of a wreck then. So I, I would kind of just pulled out and, and started working up there and just wasn't ready. Plus the fact that um, because my mother had gotten married, um, they started basing everything on her and my stepdad's income. So I didn't get any kind of financial help and I couldn't afford school. So I think that was actually probably the full reason I dropped out after that is I couldn't afford it. And they couldn't, they didn't make enough to help me, but I didn't make, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't afford school. So I dropped out and started working um, and stayed up there for about six years and worked. Um, and then, and then I moved back home after that. And I took class, I, I, I've taken class. I, I took classes off and on for so long. By the time I actually decided what I wanted to do when I grew up, when I was 38, I had like 105 credit hours under my belt. But it was in so many different Almost things. Almost a degree. Almost but, a degree, but yeah. then it wasn't really in what I needed. So I still had another three years to go. So I'm a very educated woman in a lot of things, but. Um, I'm really curious. What, and so when that's. You didn't, and I'm going to skip ahead here, you didn't start on the dream to becoming a therapist until your late 30s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and so that six-year period, what were you working in? Um, I, uh, at first I found just like a few odd jobs. Like I, I worked at a, at a deli, at a, like a family-owned deli full-time. And that was kind of actually a really neat experience because it was just a very small family-owned business. And I got really close to them and learned just some really neat things about owning a small business. But um, then I actually got a job at a, um, a diskette duplication company. Um, and that was back when, uh, you know, there were still floppy disks, you know, the big three by five floppy disks. And um, so I uh, was at I I started out just duplicating disks and running those machines but then i ended up becoming an account manager and stuff like that and um so, so you have a sales background 
it wasn't really sales. It was, um, I did more of the shipping and the packaging. Okay. So I, I did a lot of that and, and just kind of helped manage the account from, from that, from that end of things. So I, I became a supervisor at a really young age, which was really intimidating because I had like much older people, um, and you know, that I was trying to supervise. So that was kind of a, uh, a challenge. Um, and, uh, so it, it was, it was just a really, it was an interesting time, but I did that for quite a while and I, I liked it. I learned a lot about a lot, you know, just kind of production and, and things like that. So it was, it was interesting. I enjoyed it. Um, but not really what I wanted to do. So I did, kind of, go ahead. How did you start to figure out what you wanted to do? Um, you know, I, when I, when I, when I moved back from Bowling Green into this area where I live now, I did a lot of different things. Um, so it was kind of a, it was kind of a slow build into what I finally figured out what I needed to do. Um, one of the things I had done, I, I, I had, um, I, I was, I had gone back to school. So I was doing a lot of just like restaurant work and waiting tables and things like that. Um, and then I had gotten, I had gotten married and had my, my first daughter and it was just a disaster of a marriage. And so, um, when I left him, because it was just, um, for my safety and for her safety, um, I had to find a way as a single mom at the time to make enough money to, um, support us. Um, and so I started, um, but I wanted to be with her. She had never really been with anybody but me. And so I wanted to be home with her. So I had done some medical transcription. So I started doing that, but then I also started, uh, but it wasn't enough money. So I started doing daycare too. So I was doing two jobs. I ran a daycare from home and I did medical transcription. Um, and when I started doing daycare, um, I started finding that there were a lot of kids who didn't quite fit in the box uh, that a lot of people didn't want uh, to watch because uh, they were difficult. So special needs kids were an, an area that a lot of people had, had a difficult time finding babysitters for. Um, so um, right that you know, really early on, I found uh, there was a family who had asked me to watch their son who had special needs and um, they just had had a really difficult time finding anybody to watch him because they didn't feel comfortable and other people didn't feel comfortable watching him because he wasn't verbal and um, they had had some bad experiences with another son of theirs who had had special needs. And so I started watching him and then, um, you know, uh, it, so it just kind of grew from there. And I did that for a while. Um, and then I had gotten remarried uh, to my boy's dad. And um, so I, I, I did daycare for, for a while and um, then I got to a point, I'm like, I've got to get out of my house and talk to adult people um, because I can't do this anymore. And so I started working in like the Head Start programs and in preschool um, type programs, um, and uh, which was good. And I worked for Early Head Start. And what I started to find was I was actually more drawn to the family dynamics. I loved the kids. But what I was drawn to is the families, especially when I started going into the homes, is the kids, a lot of times some of the issues that they were having was not, you know, it's because of the family dynamic and the atmosphere. And I felt more drawn to wanting to help the family and fix the family rather than just being stuck. And I felt so helpless because the kids were the way they were because the, all this whole family dynamic. But I didn't I, I I knew I had some ideas, but I couldn't do it because I didn't have any kind of degree to do that. That's what I was drawn to. And we had a therapist that would come and help them. And, and I spent a lot of time with him and I tended to get a lot of the hard families because I worked well with them. And he had said to me at one point, you know, you would really be good. You would, you, you would make a good therapist. And he had said that. And those were things that I had heard throughout my life, actually. Um, that just did very, I just various things that I had done. I had just kind of heard, and I never realized how much I had heard that. Um, and then one day in 2008, I was talking on the phone with a friend of mine 
she was having some issues going on in her marriage. And she said, I swear, you should just, you, you should be a counselor. You should get paid for doing this because you're always listening to people. And she's like, I don't know why you don't just go back and do that with your life. You should get paid to do this because you're really good. And something clicked with me. As soon as she said that, it was like, I don't know. This whole feeling came over me. It was like, you ever just, that um, was like this burning in me. Because I think at that time, um, I was just going through something personal anyway, trying to figure out what am I doing? What am I doing with my life? Um, I was, you know, at the time I was doing a lot of music at my church, but I was kind of struggling there with some things. And because um, I kind of thought that that gave me a real sense of purpose, but I was struggling with some things there. And um, somebody new had come in and just kind of displaced, you know, I'd been leading there for a long time and somebody else came in and they just kind of had shoved me off to the side. And I thought, well, maybe this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. And, you know, I had been going through some self-doubt and things like that. And, and I just thought, I don't know, maybe music is not something I should be doing. And so I was just kind of faltering, I think a lot with identity. And when she said that, something had just gone through me. It was just like, maybe I've been looking after the wrong, the wrong purpose. And when she said that, when she said that to me, something just snapped, something clicked in place. And I thought maybe I should, because I had been wanting to do something more. I knew that I, what I was doing career wise was not what I wanted to be doing. And it did, it clicked into place. And I started looking at um, programs and thought, can I do this? You know, can I do this? Um, and, and when I did, I, I, it just kind of fell into place. And so I started, and I, I just thought, I'm, I, why not? And so I looked and I still had to get my undergrad. So I started looking at psychology programs and, um, and so I just, I thought I've, I've got to do this. I don't want to be stuck. I want to do something that I love to do. And uh, I started and I started on a bachelor's program. And when I finished my bachelor's program, um, my boy's dad actually started going really downhill with his own mental health. And um, so he, we ended up, you know, having to split up. Um, it was just, again, safety reasons. Um, he just wouldn't get help. And so it ended up being um, safer for me and my kids. And uh, so I took a year after I graduated. Um, I, I, in March, he left, I, I asked him to leave in March. And I graduated in May with my bachelor's. And I took a year because I just, I needed a year. Um, and then I thought, here, so I found myself, you know, I was a single mom, I had three kids and I was still working for um, that for early head start. And I thought, you know what, I'm like broke all the time. I'm making $11 an hour, um, barely making it. And I thought I'm broke anyway. So I, my, my new theme was broke with a purpose. So I, I may, if I'm going to be broke, I may as well be broke in grad school. So I just decided that's what I'm going to do. If I, I, I need to pursue this, I've got to do something. I've got to do something better for my kids and I've got to do something better for me. And if I'm going to be a therapist, this is the direction I need to go. And my, you know, I had been through because of the divorce, I had, I had gone back to see a counselor again. And I thought this has helped me so much. I've been through so much junk in my life. Um, and that can't be without purpose, you know? So we take, sometimes we just take our own junk and, you know, it gives it purpose when we can take our own junk that we've been through and use it. And so I thought, that's what I'm doing. And um, I've never looked back and it took me longer. You know, I was a single mom and I had to work full time. So the program that should have taken me two years took me um, four, should have taken me three and a half, but um, I, uh, had met my current husband and he's an amazing man and we got married and uh, he got really sick. Um, so this, the one semester he got really sick, it was on life support. So I ended up having to take the rest of that semester off because he was so ill. And uh, so it set me back a semester, but 
graduated and um, it's been, you know, it's just been, an, and, and I've known, I mean, as soon as I really started doing this work and, and as soon as I actually started um, in my graduate program, in that time, it was back in 2012, um, I got my CDCA and I started working um, uh, as a drug and alcohol counselor. So then when I started in my master's program um, and then, you know, moved on to my practicum, I was able to, um, I was able to move on and start doing the mental health portion, which is literally, you know, I wanted to do both. And so now I have a passion. I love working with both. And it's really funny. I know I'm just jabbering on, but what was really funny is when I decided to be a counselor, when I thought this is really what I do, what I want to do. I kind of told myself and, you know, I'm a pretty spiritual person. So I was, you know, I, I do a lot of praying. So I was praying and I said, you know, but the one area I told God, I said, the one area I don't think I do, I'll do is, is, is addiction. I, I don't really understand it. And I, I don't really feel connected to it. Well, that's where I started. And uh, actually, I love it. It's probably, um, I actually fell in love with doing substance use counseling. And it's the first thing I did. And uh, um I, I actually love working in that area just as much as I do mental health. And so, and actually, I don't think you can really separate the two. Um, and so, so actually some of my favorite clients to work with are actually the dual diagnosis who, who are dealing with both. And so, but yeah, I just, uh, I've been doing that since uh, 2012 and um, have been licensed since um, 2016, you know, it, with my LPC but um you know actually started with you know work at counseling with mental health when i started with my practicum so it's been which was in 2014 so it took me a while but yeah it's been pretty awesome been a great experience so let's go back to that time okay. uh you are um just have you just finished grad school you have three kids you're i believe divorced at this point um and you are starting your first job as a therapist mm -hmm. what what was that like and what happened um well actually i was uh, when i first graduated i had just been newly married again so oh okay yeah i but you're right i was my first job um The job I was working then was actually the, I was fortunate to be able to, um, I was working at the place where I had done my practicum and internship. They hired me um, full time when I was doing that. So I was continuing that. Um, you know, it was, it was a really neat place. It was a real growth experience because um, they, uh, it was a place called health recovery services and it was a really great place and it was a good experience because they dealt with both substance use and mental health so i couldn't have asked for a better place to start and i had this fantastic clinical supervisor um, i learned so much from her and i think that's key when you're starting out in the field if you've got a really good clinical supervisor um, that's that's really key when you're starting a new job and and if i hadn't had her um i think it would have been a totally different experience but when you have somebody that you can call on when you're unsure what do i do with this situation what do i do um you know i'm not sure about this diagnosis this is what i'm thinking and and i liked her because she didn't give me the answer she processed it with me and she made me process it and made me tell her what I was thinking. And then she would tell me what she was thinking. Um, so she was just really good because she drew out the best in me. Um, and she was always willing to tell me what I did well. She was also not afraid to tell me if I didn't do something well. Um, but it always started out, if I made a mistake, she would say, well, not sure that was the best way to handle that. 
um, not sure you should have done that. Uh, let's think about how you could have done that better the next time. So I never felt stupid. I don't, that's one of the things I can't stand is to be made to feel, to feel stupid. Um, and I don't, well, I don't think anybody does. I think that's, um, it, it's not helpful. Um, none of us like to make mistakes. And so, but we all do, especially as a new therapist, there's no way coming out of school. We are not prepared in grad school to be therapists. We're just not. Uh, we're prepared uh, with theory. We're prepared with the groundwork, but we don't actually, we come out of there. And I think we all expect in graduate school to like know what to do, but you don't. You, you come out of grad school and it's like you have all this theory, you have all this knowledge about uh, maybe why people do the things they do and, um, you know, or there's, or the, the basis behind, uh, you know, like cognitive behavioral therapy. We understand the concepts of it, but what do we do with it? It's like, what do we do? Um, how do you apply it? You're not taught that. You're not taught what to do when you're sitting in front of a person who is dealing with issues with an issue and what do you actually do to help them? You're not taught that. And so, you know, that's why those practicum and internships are so important. Um, you're not taught, I mean, you, re you read in a book what bipolar disorder looks like, but until you see it sitting in front of you, you don't know. And so, there's nothing that prepares you for that. And you have to have somebody good to tell you it's okay that you are scared to death to move into that, into that room with that person and that it's normal to feel that way. Um, that you're not gonna always know what questions to ask, but it's okay. Because you know what? You can ask them the next time you see them. If you forget something, it's okay. You're just gonna do it the next time. Um, and so, uh, that there's very few mistakes that you can make that are so bad other than, and, and then telling you what those bad, bad, bad mistakes are. Don't have sex with your clients. There are boundaries you don't cross. But if you don't do those things, you're probably going to be okay. And, and always ask about, you know, and, and what do you do if your client is suicidal? If, you know, you got you to gotta cover certain things, but if you aren't making those mistakes, you're probably not going to warp anybody. You know what I mean? It's like. Don't have sex with your clients. <laughs> Does that happen? <laughs> it has to be said. You would not believe how much that has to be said. And I hate to say that, but you, I mean, but I'm just saying. But I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> no, I'm just. My, my, I can't my with you. <laughs> Okay. We went like probably close to 15 minutes straight, but I can't anymore. <laughs> I tried to. <laughs> Listen, now, my point is, is that that's what I'm saying. You have to really cross a line to make a really big mistake. Okay. So as long as you're not crossing that line. Okay. That's my point. Okay. Okay. Uh, so uh, what, what has been... <laughs> What has been here? <laughs> like, I was like, yes, we're doing this. We're going to make it the whole way without dying loud laughter. Uh, okay, so um, what has been your evolution? <laughs> this podcast is done. <laughs> what has been your evolution <laughs> from those early days as a therapist to um, launching your own practice? Um. I probably, I think my, uh, I think I've grown a lot in being okay with me. Um, you know, when I first started, you know, I worried a lot. I think I worried a lot about being the perfect therapist. Um, and there is no such thing. Um, you know, I, I, I worried about what if I'm not, what if I'm not enough? What if they don't get better? Um, what if I don't say all the right things? Um, 
And what if I don't know what to do? And I think, you know, I've worked, what really helped me is, you know, I had that, I had that for, you know, I worked in, um, you know, just strictly substance use and it was a residential and that was a great experience. And then um, I worked, you know, in that, in that next position. And then I worked in a community mental health center. And I will tell you what, community mental health will prepare you for anything. I mean, um, that, that was probably the most helpful. It was the hardest job I've ever done. Um, and probably just because of the position I was in, I, I moved from a therapist there to being a clinical director. And that was just really stressful. But what I learned from there, um, I worked with um, very critically ill people. Um, you know, I had never, before I went there, I had not dealt with people who had schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, um, who were chronically suicidal. Uh, you know, who were, um, I had not done, you know, I, you know, I had not gone to the hospitals and tried to evaluate to decide whether somebody needed to be hospitalized or not, you know, done that part of the evaluation. I had dealt with people who were suicidal, but I hadn't ever had to be the one to determine does somebody need to be hospitalized because they're delusional or because they are um, psychotic or because they are suicidal or homicidal. I hadn't dealt with, I not dealt with anybody who was, you know, truly homicidal. I hadn't dealt with it to that, with, with that level of illness. Um, I had not dealt with somebody who was, I mean, completely delusional. Uh, I had not seen that level of illness. And so that being in community mental health prepared me. And I'm thankful that I had that because now, um, there's nothing really that shocks me. So I don't feel afraid. I think that's the thing. I don't feel afraid anymore. Um, Because I've gotten some of the most random calls. Um, And so, and I feel like more prepared that I know what to do. And so, um, not that I never feel afraid. You know, I, I have, there've been a few times I've gotten a call from somebody saying they're going to do something that still is like, huh, you know, am I going to get that call back in time? Uh, not now that I've been in private practice, but when I was working at community mental health, I mean, there's been a few doozies of, of voicemails that I've gotten and I'm like, Oh buddy, you know, um, but I think because that became the norm, um, I'm used to it. And so I can take things. uh, There's not a lot that ruffles my feathers, I guess. And so um, people can say things and it doesn't faze me. And I think that's one of the things that people like is that there's, you know, I'm very, you know, you can say anything to me and I'm, I'm very down to earth. There's nothing that people can say, or there's nothing that they can't talk about. They, they don't, there's no, obviously, I mean, I will say anything, you know that. Um, and so they can say anything to me too. And so there's not any judgment. They can say whatever they need to say. And um, I can make, I think the other thing is because I'm very comfortable now, they're very comfortable. Um, I've learned how to make somebody who doesn't want to be there in my office be okay with being there. Um, and I think that's part of it too, having worked in community mental health and some of the, like the first place I worked, it was a lot of court ordered people, court ordered people don't want to be in therapy. Um, and I learned really quickly how to, um, help the most resistant of clients who did not want to be in my office, be okay with being there. And in fact, if they had to be there, they liked coming to me and actually they would work on things. Um, in the long run, they actually liked being there. And some of them, even after their court order was done, would stay because they actually got something out of it. And so, um, you know, that I just learned a lot about how to motivate people, um, especially those who, uh, uh, especially in substance use and things like that, um, they didn't want to be there. And have a problem 
I don't, you know, this is not, this is ridiculous. I shouldn't have to be here, but I'm going to be here because otherwise I'm going to jail. Okay. That works. No problem. You don't have to work on any, that's what I always tell you. You don't have to work on anything. It's not, you know, that's okay. I just, I just need you to come because I, you know, I, I hate having to report back to a probation officer that you're not here. So, but if you have to be here, are there, is there anything, anything at all that you want to talk about? You know, that, you know, and so it was just, it was amazing how people would eventually come around um, because they weren't forced to. And so I just learned how to work with people. And that's what I became, I think, more comfortable with. And so that, I think that's probably where I've grown the most is um, figuring out really how to meet just about anybody where they are and helping them come around to where they want to be and not making it about me. Um, and I think that's what they like. And so I've grown a lot in that. I think I've grown in understanding what a therapist is, uh, being a therapist is about. So when I first came in, I thought I had to fix everybody, and I don't. It's not my job. It really is meeting them where they are and figuring out what they want, because it isn't about me. It's about them. It's what they want their life to look like. Um, it's not for me to determine what their life should look like, because uh, I don't walk in their shoes. They do, and they get to determine what, what, better look, what better means to them and what they want things to look like, and I think when they realize that um, that I'm not going to tell them what they have to do or what they should do. Um, it takes a lot of pressure off. And, uh, so I think there's, I think that's probably my biggest evolution is figuring out I don't have to fix them. They do. Um, it's just, I'm there to help them figure that out and walk with them. And I'll tell them that, you know what, I don't have all the answers, but I will stick with you till we get them. And that's a lot of times all they need to know is that um, sometimes I won't know either, but I promise you that I will stick with you until we figure it out. Um, and, and people like that. So. On that note, Janet Harrington, uh, it has been a lovely session with you learning about your youthful cleverness and your, uh, I guess, kind of going against the authority at times to your fear of chickens and your ninja moves <laughs> to your personal growth and your life story and all the jobs and all the life experience you have and, and you've had before even becoming a therapist to why you've become a therapist to how you create, how you care. It's clear just from your energy and how you talk about what you do for your clients, how much you care and your compassion and how you, it's important to make people feel welcome when they're working with you and how you stick with them. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you.